Hi everyone, welcome to your second Bulletin of Spanish Studies podcast. I'm Gemma McKenna from the Bulletin and I will be talking to academics from the UK, Ireland and around the world to find out about the latest research in Hispanism across Spain, Portugal and Latin America. This podcast is the second in a series focused on research journeys where we consider how it's possible for someone to start the research career with Spanish Golden Age poetry and, partway through their journey, switch to look at 20th century visionaries, and that's just one example. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr Jean Andrews, Associate Professor at University of Nottingham, herself a poet and opera singer, who will tell us about her research into poetry, Hispanic religious painting in the Renaissance and Baroque, and 19th century opera, and the challenges associated with having such a diverse research portfolio. How not to look like a dabbler. She'll be joined by Dr. Anne Holloway from Queen's University Belfast, an early modern poetry specialist and assistant editor at the Bulletin of Spanish Studies, who will tell us how teaching inspired her closer study of unseen presences in the margins of texts. Dr. Ricky O'Raw, also of Queen's University Belfast, will share his views on his philosophical journeys through Latin America and modern art and how collaborative working can boost creativity. Listen out for their try this at home tips on how to get stuck into research with no procrastinating. Promise. We have with us Dr. Jean Andrews, Associate Professor of Spanish, Portuguese and Latin American Studies at the University of Nottingham. A warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. You have a wonderfully varied research portfolio covering poetry in English and the major Romance languages and you also write your own and translate others. Hispanic religious painting in the Renaissance and Baroque, festal culture in that same period and 19th century opera on Hispanic themes. And let's not forget that you are a professionally trained opera singer. How important is such variety and how do you go about finding new material and developing and maintaining those interests? Well, I'm just very nosy. I've <laughs> always been nosy. The reason I learned languages to begin with was because I wanted to read the literatures in, in the language. I wanted to feel what it was like to experience it in the original language rather than reading it in translation. And and then that, that got me interested in all sorts of other things. And, and I never... I never wanted to be bound by, by the narrow confines that we often find in the academic life. And it's not been a great advantage to me because if you're constantly moving around and doing different things, then I'm, you're not really an expert in anything. You're, you're a dabbler or you're a dilettante. So it takes a very long time to be taken seriously in, in the various different things that I do, which is why I'm still here and still doing things. Because the, the great thing is that things are often very new and very exciting and, and very interesting and you're diving into something new all the time. And then eventually, if you've been doing it as long as I have, it all begins to tie up and you begin to say, oh, yeah, they were doing this in Spain in the 19th century. Look, the same thing was going on at the beginning of the 17th century. And guess what? They were doing something similar in Mexico. And and it becomes part of a continuum, a really logical and, and well-integrated continuum. But it takes, it takes a, a very long time mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of patience. And people looked at me years ago and they said, oh, you can't do that. Don't be, don't be daft. These things don't go together. This is r- ridiculous because... Humanity likes categories and it likes pigeonholes and it likes to be nice and secure in its boundaries. And someone like me comes along and you're just not taken seriously, basically. So do you think it's a difficult environment for anyone that has varied interests, that it's such sort of narrow confines? It, 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 it has always been, and I think increasingly more so now, because oh. in the academic world we're pressured into applying for grants. And we're measured now by our success in, in, in getting grants. And you can't really get a grant if you're doing six different things because the panel will sit there and go, this, this person cannot be serious, to quote John McEnroe, um, unless, unless they know you. And then when they know you or if they've, if they've heard you or if they've actually read your work at length, they might think, oh, yeah, actually, 
this is this is a person who does actually do this kind of stuff in an unusual way and in a way that that makes it work. But in general, no, I felt like I've been slapped across the face with a wet fish several times. Oh, that's terrible. And is there any sort of one part of your research that you is a bigger part than the others or that you enjoy more than the others or that you keep coming back to? I think when I think when I discovered that I could write about paintings, I had a kind of moment, an almost Damascene conversion, because I'm not a trained art historian at all. I've I've learned about pictures by standing in galleries and staring at them for hours. I mean, I'm that foolish woman you see there parked in front of the same picture for two hours with a coffee break in the middle, begging them to tell me their secrets. That's what I do. I stand there and I go, okay, why is that detail there? And I stare at it and stare at it and stare at it. It's not academic at all. It's more of a kind of intuitive communing with the picture and it's exactly the same process as poetry I have to say and that's and and lots of people who work on painting also work on poetry or are interested in poetry there's it's a kind of there's a kind of focus and and condensation in the way in condensed nature of the way in which you actually approach both forms so so that's that's it painting for me the harder the better the more arcane the more 16th century the more full of weird symbols the better so what advice would you have for someone who's coming into academia and who's interested in one thing, but then discovers something else and thinks, no, actually, that's what I'd like to do. But they're a little bit afraid. What advice do you have yeah. for them? Well, I would say that if you're lucky, you'll be in this career for a very long time. So it's really important to do something that you love, because if you don't love it, you'll get very tired of it and you'll get browned off and you will get disillusioned. It is difficult to make the transition. It's very difficult if you're a young researcher trying to establish a consistent and coherent trajectory of research interests. But talk to people, talk to more experienced people than yourself, because I'm sure you'll be able to find a way of creating a link between what you've started with and where you want to be. And if you can make that transition seem seamless and logical, then it should work for you. But take advice. Always take advice. Great advice already from you. Okay. And what about research journals? Obviously, we're the Bulletin of Spanish Studies here. Yeah. What role do you think that they we still have to play I in academia? You're very, very important because you, you give people an outlet for short pieces of work. Um, and sometimes you, you might get very interested in a topic, but you only have 8,000 words in you on that topic. You don't want to do something more sustained. But that does enable you also to build up a profile in a particular area so that eventually when you get to the point of wanting to produce a more sustained piece of work, a book or something of of that nature, you've got the groundwork in place. And without the journals, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. And we wouldn't be able to see what our colleagues and friends were doing either. Mm -hmm. It's really, really important. And and of course, I I also value being asked to be a referee because I love being in the position of being able to help other people, especially people who are coming up. Oh, that's great. That's good to know that we're still still valuable. OK, can you give us any insight into what you're working on now? What's what's your latest? Well, I've just finished a book finally um, on a 16th century Spanish religious painter called Luis de Morales, who's mm-hmm. um, known in Spain, not known outside of Spain, although there's a fabulous Morales in the National Gallery in Dublin. The weird one of the weirdest paintings you ever saw at St. Jerome and he looks like E.T., and they're not actually showing it at the moment, so I'm a bit cross with them. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to explain this painter to an English-speaking audience because there's almost nothing written about him in uh, English at all. There was a brilliant exhibition in the Prado three years ago. I went to it loads of times, and everybody in the room was always Spanish. And I thought, oh, you know, really, I do have a mission here. I'm going to try to help people to understand this odd painter who produces St. Jerome's, who basically look like alien figures. Um, I can't wait to see that one. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Now, the other thing that we've been asking everyone is 
try this at home. Do you have a specific way of working when it comes to your research? Do you set aside time each day? Do you sing an aria? Maybe that's what you do. Or is there something else that you do that's maybe a little different that gets you in the zone? I have a standing desk at work mm. and at home. I discovered a while ago that if I sit down all day, I just I just turn into a creaky thing, like a bad mechano man. So um, I have two standing desks and the standing desk, believe it or not, helps me to concentrate much better. So I stand in front of the desk and I almost feel more like a sculptor than somebody who's trying to write an academic article. And it, it helps me to join up my creative self with my academic self. That's a bit weird, isn't it? But um, that, no, that's what I, I, that's what I, like I do. It. I like it. So it's more like form of physical exercise as well as mental exercise at the same time. Get your steps in. Yeah, well, I, yeah, except that when I really get absorbed in something, I stand stock still and then I get just as stiff anyway. <laughs> then you so have I have to, to go up and down the stairs a, a few times. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. I like it. Everybody has their own way of doing things. That's brilliant. Well, thanks very much, Jean, for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure as well. Now we have Dr Anne Holloway, lecturer in Spanish at Queen's University Belfast, who specialises in the literature and culture of early modern Spain. She's also assistant editor on the Bulletin of Spanish Studies. Anne, can you give us a brief overview of your research to date? Thank you, Gemma. Um, well, to date, I've, as you said, primarily worked in the early modern period, 16th and 17th century Spain. Um, and most of my publications would be in the field of poetry, which is where I started out. And uh, I've recently begun to become very interested in women's writing from the period, from 16th and 17th century Spain uh, and Spanish America. So the ways in which women represent themselves, both within a religious framework and uh, in more secular texts. And that's the direction of travel for my um, my future projects at the minute, particularly focused on, on women writers and artists. Okay. And what's been the most interesting subject for you so far that you've looked at, would you say? I think perhaps the unexpected um, elements of the journey have been the most pleasant surprises. Um, to, to some extent, teaching has been a real gift in that respect. Uh, um, at, I've, I've worked in, this is my third institution, um, and sometimes I might have been required to teach a text that I might not have been super familiar with to begin with. Uh, and through the engagement with the students in the dialogue um, that awakens a particular interest and I have a few examples where it's led to a research um, project that I wouldn't otherwise have embarked upon. So I, for example, um, fairly set text would be Lazario de Tormes and uh, I was required to teach that um, in both of my previous jobs and and through the, the students' engagement and enthusiasm for that text led me to uh, read a little deeper and I became interested in the whole framework of the picaresque and began to look at how that was a persistent mode into the 20th century um, and how it reappears in the work of a early 20th century um, female writer, um, Angeles Vicente. Yeah. I was going to ask you about her because she that was sort of a, a bit of a departure for you in a way because you, you did that article last year that was published in the bulletin, Para Usted Soy Siempre Yo, a picaresque double act in Angeles Vicente's Zese. Mm-hmm. So that was you mentioned that was sort of coming out of would you explain how you got there just a wee bit um yeah i i think as i say the the experience of teaching and the the reflect the space for reflection that that provides and the space for dialogue that that provides um was particularly instrumental there um and it also complemented work that i was beginning to do in terms of 
the unseen presences in the margins of texts, so the ways in which these texts speak to uh, an ideal reader um, in the example of the picaresque, but also in the example of confessional literature and uh, the spiritual autobiography. So it was a, a kind of natural progression of work that I was doing, but I also was particularly struck by the overt feminism of Vicente's voice within that framework. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, uh, and also the, the students really responded to that, to that text. Um, so it, it's something that, that grew quite naturally out of my, out of my teaching. Okay. Fab. I, I think one of the other things that I was interested to talk to you about is you have worked not only with colleagues within Hispanic studies, but also outside of the discipline, for example, in English. And you produced an article for one of our special issues, uh, Imaginary Matters, back in 2016, which you also guest edited. Isn't that correct? So that article, uh, can you talk to us about that and how you came to work with a colleague from a different discipline and how that sort of panned out? Um, yes, well, the the opportunity to collaborate and produce a um, a jointly authored article really came about due to the organisational structure of the event. So we organised a, an event called Imaginary Matters, which ultimately gave rise to the to the special issue, the double special issue. Um, but we, myself and my co-organiser, um, Isabel Torres, we, when we began to design that event, the premise that we started out with was that we wanted to place eminent established voices in dialogue with more emergent uh, people starting out early career um, researchers and provide a space for for those voices to coexist and collaborate and and so all of the participants in that event were invited to go off and find someone to to collaborate with and and it was really a fantastic learning experience for me. Um, it's the first time I've co-authored anything, and the the experience of f- combining our two voices and our two perspectives um, was was really enriching. And I think the the end product reveals that kind of journey and ultimately allowed us to place two women um, from the early modern period in dialogue who would never have been considered to uh, together. And um, so. Uh, Ramona, my my colleague and co-author, brought her expertise from the the period in English literature, and uh, I was able to to look at a, a, a writer, an Irish writer also, but who had to travel to Spain and look at the impact of the Spanish context. Um, and ultimately, I feel that the the end product was more than the sum of its parts, and I would be really interested to do co-author a, a co-authored project again as a result of that. But really, it all it all stemmed from the the organization of the event to begin with um so i think any any event that can kind of break up that slightly formulaic um structure of of the the academic the academic conference which has served us very well but i think there are other modes and other possibilities that that can give rise to interesting results it, it's similar, I suppose, in a way to what's happening today. You're now part of the AHRC network on women and religion in Hispanic cultures of the 20th century. How do you think membership of groups like this helps to affect a change in the direction of travel when it comes to research? For instance, you're coming more from that golden age period into more modern. How do you do you think that works? Mm. It's certainly a challenge and it's daunting um, to enter into the, tw- the 20th century and to 
enter into a dialogue with um, a group of specialists who are ultimately far more steeped in that context. And But so far, uh, we've been set reading. There's a workshop element. It's, very, it's, it's an informal structure. Experimentation and questions are allowed. So it's less daunting than being asked to produce a fully realised piece. Ultimately, that's where we're headed um, this time next year. This time next year, we will be um, there will be an event associated with the network. But at the moment, this is providing a space for dialogue, um, for finding out um, what other people are doing. But really, for me, it's been really enriching because the we can learn from one another. Um, we can. There, I'm not the only early modern specialist that that's in that's in the network, but ultimately. Um, hopefully what we can bring to that is the the long view we can mm-hmm. we can look at how women have participated in religious culture in the earlier period and how potentially we find those modes of participation reproduced in, in another vein um, but ultimately the other specialists in the 20th century are are far, are far more knowledgeable about that context so um, they're I think they're going to help me um, frame my chapters on the 20th century um, and okay. strengthen them so can you give us a bit of insight then into what it is that you're working on right now? Um, I can. It's it's very much in its infancy, but I'm conceiving a new book-length project. Um, and that's the broad frame of reference for that project is the figure of the visionary woman. So the phenomenon of the visionary woman and how um, the persistence of, of, of that phenomenon right into the 1960s in the Spanish context. So it begins in the late 15th century, the monograph, um, looks at some of the precursors to perhaps the most famous um, Spanish mystic, St. Teresa, and then looks at the impact of, of Teresa. And then, dauntingly enough, jumps forward in history into the early 20th century and looks at the Fatima visionary, um, Lucia dos Santos, and um, the final, uh, the end of this journey that I'm hoping to undertake is... Um, uh, another visionary, Conchita Gonzalez, who um, reports visionary Marian visionary experience in the 1960s in the north of Spain in Garabandal. Mm-hmm. And that's a very very different for you because this is somebody who is still alive, if I'm yes. not mistaken. So there's potentially, you know, that you can contact and that's very different to how you've been working so far. How, how are you finding that? Absolutely. Um, there is a whole different set of ethical considerations when you're dealing with a, with a living author, a, um, a living... Um, person who's obviously revealed something very personal um, and whose whose life and spiritual life has already been subject to a certain amount of scrutiny, criticism. And so I'm very aware of having to approach that with a different kind of sensitivity. And uh, But it's also interesting for me. It's an, it's an exciting departure. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to reading it when it is ready. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. Thank you. Now, I just wanted to ask you, we are asking everyone about Try This at Home. Uh, So we want to know, how do you start your research on any given day? Do you do some yoga? Do you do visualizations? Do you have a cup of tea? Or has there been a book or a podcast that's really helped you to get into the zone? What is it? I'm a bit in danger of doing all of those before I do before I do any research. That's that's the downside. I'm very I'm a lover of podcasts and um, but one I've been enjoying recently and that I've been finding helpful because it's bite sized to get in the zone is one called Meditation Minis, 
and they're like five minute maximum 10 minute um, little meditations but they it can help you kind of come to a more centered place for creativity um i also find um it useful to sometimes and now this would be dependent on having a day for research and that's not always the case um in the teaching semester but if, if you do have a free morning free research day um to try and create something before i consume anything so try and sit down with the blank page and write um, free write potentially without um, perhaps reading will have been going on prior to this but to just confront the blank page and get some thoughts down um, and I can find that quite grounding um, and often it helps you unlock something it helps you even confront even if you just write to a prompt about what you're struggling with um, it can it can really help um, get things flowing so yeah I try and free writing and some some kind of centering activity whether that's a podcast a meditation or a walk or a cup of tea excellent that sounds great i shall certainly be adopting some of those methods <laughs> thank you very much for talking to us Anne, and we look forward to reading your next work thank you my pleasure dr ricky raw lecturer in spanish at queen's university belfast is in the hot seat ricky's research interests encompass the fantastic in literature art and film Argentine literature and art, Hispanic surrealism and the avant-garde, as well as religion and spirituality in Hispanic art and literature. Hi, Ricky. Hello. You have very diverse interests and you're very open to sources outside of Hispanism informing your research. Can you talk us through how you approach that? Um, well, those interests, I suppose, developed with my undergraduate study. Originally, I studied Spanish and philosophy and when I got to postgrad then, I saw that this wasn't a novel mix necessarily, and that uh, as critical theory and theoretical frameworks start to become important um, to the academic approach to research, um, that it became quite easy for me to bridge those two interests. So it, um, I, I bring them together by taking philosophical ideas that I'm interested in and using them as a lens through which to open up uh, the artworks. Sometimes this gets me into trouble a little bit because I go to works seeking uh, ideas and there's a confirmation bias there. So uh, over the early years of my career, I have uh, started to take it the other way, to, to look firstly at the artworks and the literature and try and then... Uh, match that with philosophical sources that uh, can help unpack and open up that work, which is is the basic uh, approach of research, I think, in the contemporary world. It sounds like a good way to approach it, and just being open, I think, really helps. Bringing philosophy and literature art together is also very useful to our students, I think, because it um, allows us to open up questions and that are very relevant to their lives in the contemporary world and to point to them um, how what they are reading, even if they're reading about something that's happening in Argentina in the early 20th century, the theoretical frameworks and the philosophical questions are still relevant today and it helps them see that just being far away in time and space doesn't mean that the study that they're doing currently um, can't open up their lives in interesting ways. Okay. And speaking of opening up things, you and Dr. Eamon McCarthy have obtained a grant from the AHRC for a network. Can you tell me a bit more about it, please? 
Yes, the network is entitled, wait for it, the long, <laughs> rather unwieldy title of Women, Religion and Culture in Spain and Spanish America, 1900 to 2000. Wow. One should have probably thought of, thought of something that would make a sexy acronym, but here we go. The idea of the network is that we gather a group of scholars who work on women, religion and culture in Spain and Spanish America between 1900 and 2000 um, in order to develop well, some questions about the main theme, but principally the, the reason we're doing this in the form of a network, which has been funded by the HRC, as you said, is that we're keen to um, circumvent the usual approach to conferences, which is people arriving with pre-formed ideas and then discussing those ideas. It's, it's not that that's not... Um, not helpful or not worth anything but what we wanted to do was kind of slow down the scholarship a little bit bring a group of people who are are ultimately aiming to um, host a conference in a year's time in London and potentially um, develop a publication out of that we wanted to bring these people together so that we could uh, jointly develop a set of themes and interests and theoretical frameworks and philosophical questions that don't need to fully inform all of the work that's done, but um, will, I think, allow for a nice coalescence between the work that will eventually appear in the conference uh, and then hopefully in a publication at the end. Okay. It's a sort of luxury, in fact, to be able to work in this way. It's something that's not often available to us um, in the academy these days. Mm-hmm. And do you think that programs like this, in that case, do they help collaborative research because they let you think about things that you might not have thought of or explored otherwise? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's truly collaborative in, in many ways. The way that we have structured the network is that there's an online reading group that people participate in. So we're all reading the same material. Um and then we meet twice to present ideas. So today, for example, people are just presenting initial ideas. We had a session uh, reflected on the readings that we did at the very beginning. People were quite sort of nervous initially because it's very difficult to find space to read things thoroughly. And, you know, you're in a group with your peers, everyone with very different interests. But already the discussion has been very rich. We're finding points of connection between papers that were unforeseen. Um, and before any of us have had to decide finally on what we're actually going to present at a conference, we are already thinking along the same lines. So I think we will coherently and collaboratively develop a set of ideas across this network that will make, I hope, and I'm pretty confident now, even after just two hours of the session, um, will make for a very rich conference in London next year. Excellent, fantastic. We look forward to hearing more about that when the time comes. And I just want to to find out from you, your try this at home, how do you approach your research? Is it in a set way? Do you have any techniques? Do you have any particular songs or anthems that you play in order to psych yourself up? Or what is it? Um, I think coming out of postgrad a couple of years ago, I definitely was one of those people who felt that you needed a long, unbroken period of time in order to complete research. And I I still fall into that trap very often. It's very, with all of the pressures that 
a lecturer has um, during the semester. It's difficult to proceed with research. Um, but in my early career, someone introduced me to the Pomodoro method. I wish I had known about it when I was postgrad, but now it has been of particular use to me when I remember to use it. Um, and the way it works, if mm-hmm. you might what know already, it? but the no. way it works is basically you set a timer, usually for 25 minutes, and that is 25 minutes for writing or reading to write, we allow in our Queen's writing groups. Um, what it means is that it just gives you a set period of time where you force yourself to focus on research. So normally if I had a, an hour between classes, I would go to my emails and uh, start to gather ideas uh, or start to gather all my research. If, if I wanted to try and gather ideas or do a bit of reading, I always postponed that because I felt I didn't have enough time. And when I remember to just do a Pomodoro, it's amazing how focused you can be Instantly. with just that little timer. Mm-hmm. Um, it means that I can kind of keep in touch with the research. I mean, I don't always get to do even 25 minutes on a day, in a day, but um, if I come in half an hour early and get one Pomodoro done before the beginning of uh, the working day, it really takes the edge off, mm-hmm. make, keeps you Sets in touch you and makes you feel that you've achieved that part of your job, something in that part of your job for the day. That's great. Sounds like excellent advice. Well, Ricky, thank you very much for taking time out to come and chat to us here. It was a pleasure speaking to you. My pleasure.